We've got uh, two items of business to accomplish before we... But we've got tonight, and if we don't get all three of these accomplished, I'll save whatever we don't get answered till the next time. Like last time, I had like two quick ones and then two long ones, and the one first quick one, you know, ate up and, and, and ate up like three hours of our time. So again, I think this is a quick one, but you know, it might not be. Um, so we're starting with this one, and um, I need everybody's attention if I can. Um, I'm starting with, um, this question was uh, similar, it's a different question, but it's similar to the question from last time, and that is, this person was watching uh, Christian television and saw a TV preacher, I don't know the name of the preacher, it doesn't really matter, um, but the TV preacher said to the effect, from this um, passage, turn, if you would, to, if you brought your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. And by the way, since we're doing more of an interactive uh, approach, what we're going to do is we're going to record the message like we did last time. We probably won't upload it on Sermon Audio, but we'll make it available to any church member that wants to hear it. So either if you want to hear it again later or you know somebody that would be interested in hearing it, uh, we'll have that available and just ask David for the uh, CD. First Peter chapter 3. I'll read verses 18 to 20 when I get there. One more page and I'm there. Okay. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now this particular preacher, uh, using this text, said to the effect that what Jesus did was that um, after his death on the cross, he went to Hades, went to hell where the, uh, the lost souls were waiting in the Old Testament, and he preached the gospel of salvation to those who had lived during the days of Noah, um, the, the period prior to the flood, and he offered them a second chance for salvation through the proclamation of the gospel. So the question this person asked is, you know, what about what this TV preacher said? Is it true? Is it not true? Um, I'll just say this. There are, this is easily one of the top five most difficult passages in the New Testament to deal with and to interpret properly and to make sure that you're not violating any other biblical principles or passages in your conclusions about it. There are three main options of interpretation. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the three main options and then we can discuss why the first option, which is the one that this preacher chose, is the only absolutely wrong one. Absolutely no way is that a possible interpretation. There are two other possibilities which are completely different in their approach to interpreting this passage, but both are within biblical possibility parameters. Okay? Okay, the first of the three options are Jesus went after his death on the cross, either before or after his resurrection, doesn't matter so much in that respect in terms of what they're describing he did. 
He went to hell where the fallen, you know, the unsaved people were waiting in, um, in that place. And he preached the gospel of salvation to them. Basically said, believe in me and um, you can be saved even though you're already dead. And presented them a second chance for salvation. And many of those were saved as a result of that action. Um, that is not the truth. He did not do that. This passage is absolutely not teaching that. Why do you think that can't be the truth? Very good. Simple passage that Clara references in Hebrews. It's uh, chapter 9 where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man to die once. And after this, the judgment. The, the, the point of that passage, which which precludes the possibility of that first interpretation is it's appointed to die after that comes judgment. Meaning not after that comes judgment or in some cases, some special circumstances, second chance for salvation, a second hearing of the gospel. But after that comes judgment. And this is true for every single human being, whether you're saved or unsaved. The only thing after death that we wait for is the final judgment and the separation of all into sheep and goats. And our opportunities for salvation are limited to our life here in this world. Otherwise, the proclamation of the gospel in this present world in this present life becomes just one of various options that are at God's disposal in order to save people. Now that view is very popular, of course, among a particular group of people that identify themselves by various terms, but they are, they are, um, they are, um, what's the the terminology that I want to uh, label them with? It's a common uh, theological term. They're um, Universalist, thank you very much. If you're reading any theological views about salvation and different perspectives of salvation, when you see the universalist perspective being dealt with, um, you'll find this passage being traditionally mishandled, misinterpreted, and misused. A universalist is simply someone that believes that ultimately, eventually, everyone will be saved. No exceptions. That the Lord does give second chances after death, and if necessary, third chances, fourth chances, and fifth chances, and until they eventually get it. They believe in a kind of a hell experience in the sense that it's temporary, and you only need to stay there as long as you finally you know, your stubborn heart finally, you know, yields and you're willing to believe the message and then you're welcomed in to heaven afterwards. And of course, again, this, this you know, undercuts and undermines the integrity of the gospel and the importance and the value of the gospel and why it's so critically important that the church proclaims the gospel here in this present life as the Lord's one and only means of saving individuals. So that first view 
that he went to preach a second chance is the only of the three, and I'll give you the other two in a moment, the only of the three that's absolutely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't hear about God like we are hearing now about Christ. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, uh, Jesus went there to proclaim the gospel. Right. I, I understand that that logic, and it makes a certain kind of rational sense, what they're saying. But, but you can't use this passage to accomplish that. The reason being, this passage is focused only on, as it says, look in verse... Um, Look in verse 19 again. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So what this is in reference to is something to do with some group of spirits in the days of Noah. This is not describing Jesus going to hell and preaching the gospel to everybody that died before he came. This is only referring to some group of spirits who were active in some sinful way in the days of Noah. And at the most that you could make a case for if we were drawing a timeline, this isn't true either, but at the most, if if this was what they think it was, Jesus is here, you know, at at this point in history at the cross, Noah, the flood, you know, I'll, I'll draw a rain cloud here. This is much earlier in history. And this being the Garden of Eden, from the Garden of Eden to the flood, at the most you could make a case and say it only includes the people that live between those two lines on the chart. It doesn't have anything to do with the people from here to here. You see, do you see that from the text? It's in the days that spirits in the days of Noah, not spirits after the days of Noah. Yes, and in fact, that's going to be one of our next two options. Okay, and let me give you the next two options then. All right, so the first option, which was Jesus went to preach the gospel to give a second chance of salvation, is wrong. Okay. It's just flat out unbiblical and wrong. The next two options, though, either one of these could be true. I lean toward one of these two, but I'm going to allow and say, if you, have the, if you hold to the other perspective about what this could mean, I'm fine with that. And there are a lot of good Bible teachers that hold to that view as well. So the second possibility is he went and preached the gospel to people not after his death on the cross, but back spiritually in the days of Noah by preaching the gospel through Noah himself back at that time. This is what Clara is referring to. So this one, this option would be preaching to people through Noah at the time of Noah. 
And the, the way the language is formulated here in the passage, it allows for that possibility. When it says, this is how they read the text, when it says, in which, the in which is the Holy Spirit that's in reference in the end of verse 18, made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, what they say is that proclamation could either be at the time that he was raised from the dead, he went and proclaimed, or it could mean he went back in the days of Noah and preached through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, to the people that now are in prison. Okay, I know that's a little bit convoluted, but that's what they believe as they try to make sense of a very difficult and hard-to-understand text. Okay? So here it is, a preaching of the gospel, but it's Noah preaching before the flood came. To everybody that's gathering out of curiosity about this ship that he's building, and, the, and Peter in another place in his book does mention that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So it could be Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, preaching through Noah at the time of Noah, and now the people that, that rejected that message are spirits who are in prison. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes, there, there's no question about that. To answer the question that uh, Maria raised earlier, because what you're referring to actually has to do with that conversation you're having, which is, yes, we have more details in the New Testament in terms of proclamation of, of truth than they did in the Old Testament time. But what the Bible teaches is every person that's ever been born into this world has had the message preached to them. Everyone has had the message preached to them. Some have had the message preached with greater detail through words, and others have had the message preached in the way that God has designed the creation itself. Meaning, every night they look up at the stars and they see the stars and they hear a proclamation of the existence of God and the glory of God. And their hearts are convicted to give honor to God who made all things. What they do with that conviction determines their, their standing with God in that situation. In other words, there's enough of the message preached not to save them, but enough to convict them of their sinfulness. Okay? No, I agree. Yes. Right. Well, the issue is, what do you do with the light that you're given? That's the issue. What do you do with the light that you are given? The issue between God and every soul is exactly that on the Day of Judgment. What have you done? Because God gives light to every person. He gives a measure of information and understanding to every person that has entered into this world. Like, at the, like I'll come back to the, this uh, third option in just a moment. The Gospel of John chapter 1 makes this statement. This is uh, 1.6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Now, that light, which enlightens everyone, doesn't mean that it saves everyone. 
But, it, but God has given a sufficient light to every single person that has ever been born into this world to make them responsible to God. So, no, you could say a measure of light. Okay, it's an important distinction. Because what that means is on the day of judgment, no one will be able to come in their turn before the throne and say, I never knew. No one. God says, well, did you see the stars in the heavens? Did you see the way that I made the world around you? Did you eat food? Did you breathe air? Did you drink water? All of those things I made, and I made them in such a way that they testify about my goodness, you know, my, my power, my glory. And so what did you do in your heart with that information that I gave you about myself? And the point is that anyone that's ultimately lost on the final day rejected that information in their heart, rebelled against it. Not, I really want to know the one who gave me this air to breathe and this food to eat and these stars to shine on me, but I just can't find him. Because that person, God will find a way to save them, without exception. Whatever that way is, just like he did throughout the Old Testament. Both. Both. Just like he found certain Gentiles that didn't have as much information as the Israelites and saved them, even in the Old Testament. Okay? All right, the third option, and the third option is the one that I believe. But as I said, if you believe the second one, that's fine too. Okay? The third option is that 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20 is not talking about a proclamation of the gospel to human beings at all. It's talking about a different kind of proclamation to fallen angels, spirits in prison. Let me read it again with that perspective. 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, which I believe is a reference to his resurrection from the dead. So that what I believe is being described here happened after his resurrection in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, in the Bible, the Bible clearly does describe that human beings have spirits, but it never refers to human beings as disembodied spirits unless it refers to them as the spirits of human beings. Like in the book of Revelation or the book of Hebrews, it refers to the spirits of just men made perfect. All right, so that we can always distinguish between angelic spirits and human spirits as we're reading the text. We're not left to wonder, is he talking about humans or angels? However, angels are commonly referred to throughout the Bible as just spirits. Okay? So I believe here the spirits in prison are angels that have fallen. Now, it says because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. If this view is correct, then that means that there was some group of fallen angels that sinned during the days of Noah. And is that the case? Well, in 2 Peter, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter refers to this himself. I've taught on this before, but it's been a while uh, when I did the teaching on the Nephilim a few years ago. I believe this is referring to the same event. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 
says, I know, it's not verse 22. Let me see. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and it's a different word for hell in the original text. It's not Hades, which is the place where human beings go where, that we commonly call hell, but it's the Greek word Tartarus, which refers to a different category, so to speak, of hell. For if God did not, and it was commonly referred to in the Greek culture as the lowest compartment of hell, the darkest and deepest and lowest compartment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, which is prison, okay? Chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. So in this case, what Peter does is he refers to the fall of a specific group of angels and then immediately connects it to the events of the days of Noah. And I believe that's exactly what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter um, 3, verses 18 through 20. So one of the rules of interpretation that I follow is that when you come to a different, difficult passage of Scripture, if the same author addresses a similar theme in elsewhere in either the same letter or another letter that he's written, go to that for the commentary on the difficult passage first. And I believe this passage is a commentary on the other. So what was the sin of these spirits? We've talked about this from the Genesis 6 passage. I won't veer off into this too far. But it was the, the, the spiritually sinful, illegal activity of human-angel interaction. And I won't get into the details of that interaction. And in that, they fell. Not all of the angels are identified in that group, but a specific group, a certain number fell sinned at that time just prior to the fall. God consigned them to prison. And then this passage in chapter 3 indicates that later, after the resurrection, Jesus went and visited this group of specific imprisoned spirits. And the word he, that Peter uses isn't preach, like preach the gospel. It's a word which means to proclaim. And I like that the ESV has made the change in the, in the translation proclaim as a herald. You know what a herald was in, in old, uh, like Middle Ages terminology? Yeah, it was, it was the official announcer of the king. So if the king had an announcement to make to his subjects, he would send a herald out into the public square and he would say, hear ye, hear ye, you know, hear the, the message of the great king. And so he made a proclamation as a herald, which is not an offer of salvation or restoration, but it's a proclamation of accomplishment, victory. The work has been done. And why did Jesus feel the need to, com- to make that proclamation to these spirits? It's the only group of angels that are completely separated from the rest of God's dealings. So apparently he felt it was necessary to make that proclamation of his victory um, in the accomplishment of the great plan and you know, left them in that circumstance. And they're still there waiting for the day of judgment. I don't know why. That's what I just... No, I just gave it a possibility of why, but the, the text doesn't explain his motive. So I don't want to insert my own idea and say this is what he was thinking. My, the, the one possibility to me is that this is the only group of angels that's separated from the rest of God's dealings, meaning 
The rest of the angels have fallen, but they're still circulating around and interacting, you know, albeit in a sinful way, but they're still interacting. This group has been completely separated from everything and everyone, and they're in chains of gloomy darkness in the darkest, lowest regions of Tartarus. So apparently he felt it was necessary to complete the circle, so to speak, to make this proclamation that the plan has been accomplished and they missed out. So anyway, that's my view. And my view is held by, you know, good, solid, heavyweight Bible teachers. And then the second view is held by good, solid, heavyweight Bible teachers. And the first view is held by heretics. So those are your three options. Okay, so that TV preacher in this area is a heretic. What that means is simply someone that violates one of the essential doctrines of the faith. This violation would be a violation of the doctrine of salvation. The, the, the declaration publicly that there is an after-death second chance for salvation, that's a heretical proclamation of salvation, corrupting the gospel. No, and it won't be the last. Right, and I'll just say this, the universalist concept that we talked about is becoming more and more popular even within some Christian circles. Absolutely, it, it, it's, very, it's a very false, comforting kind of message, okay? All right, any other questions or interaction on this first one here? Good for you, me too. <laughs> She's voting with me on the list. <laughs> And I'm open to both, too. I could be wrong on that. You know, the second one is a possibility. The, the third one makes more sense to me in the context of Peter's own use of those themes elsewhere in his own writing. It's not an essential. No, it's not. Not. Other than the first one is a violation of an essential. All right. Uh, the next one, um, I started and never finished, and I do want to get back to it and just finish it up because it's important enough of a theme to not leave a raggedy edges dangling uh, from my first treatment of it because I just, I just had enough time to introduce it. This is um, the question, how many appearances did Yahweh have in the world before his birth as Jesus? What are they considered if not comings to the earth? Okay. Yes. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad. Yes. The, the theological terms, there's two terms. The terms are theophany, which simply means, uh, this is a Y. This part means God. This part means appearance. So a theophany, as a theological term, it refers to an appearance of God in this world. Christophany, obviously, is just narrowing the focus of these appearances and identifying the appearance with Christ himself. I believe, and I believe it's, it's right to believe this, that all Old Testament theophanies are also Christophanies, meaning that when God appears in this world, and there are many appearances, many appearances of God in this world in the Old Testament, we typically think of, like, you're familiar with these terms, and you should be. First coming, second coming, and we're referring to Christ, right? 
His first coming was when and where? Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Born as a human being in the manger. Second coming is when and where? At the end of history. And every eye will see. All right? So how many comings of the Lord are there? And we're using coming as a technically precise theological term. There are only two comings. And what we're referring to here is, when we call it a coming, technically precise, what this is referring to is physical incarnational appearance. Meaning that the first coming, he incarnated and came as a physical human being. The second coming tags onto, in an important way, his continuing physical presence from the first incarnation, but with one important distinction. What's the difference between his incarnational physical coming and the second coming from the first? Yes, resurrected body. First coming was a non-resurrected body. Second coming, the same body, but now transformed, glorified, resurrected. But theologically, there are only two comings in all of history. But there are many appearances. We could count them, but the problem is, and this is, you're right in a sense, because um, what I said last time in the introduction is, it's difficult in certain cases to identify, is this an appearance of the Lord or not? Okay? Some are obvious, like when, um, when the Lord and two angels, appearing in the form of human beings, came and sat down and had lunch with Abraham. And then the two angels were sent ahead to evaluate the moral and spiritual condition of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord with Abraham went to the top of the hill looking out over the plains in which Sodom and Gomorrah were, were established and had their negotiation about what the Lord's response was going to be based upon what he knew the angels would find in those cities. And they negotiated from, you know, if there are 50 righteous down to a minimum number. If there's only 10 righteous, please spare the cities. And the Lord agreed. And of course, what the angels found were how many righteous? One. Lot was there. And so he destroyed the cities. Yes? Yeah. No. That's, I made a list of, of eight as examples. Melchizedek I saved for the eighth one because it's a commonly misused example of a Christophany. <coughs> Let's look at him. <coughs> Genesis chapter 14. You guys are familiar with Melchizedek? He only occurs one time. He comes into the story one time. It's this one interaction with Abraham. And it's, it's a very common thing to refer to Melchizedek. Bible teachers do this all the time as a theophany or as a Christophany. I'm going to be really bold and confident and say this is not a Christophany. Okay? Melchizedek was a, a normal human being. But he is a symbol and a type of Christ. Okay? 
But that's different than Christ himself appearing, just being there for a moment or, or a, a short time. Like, for instance, the, the Abraham appearance that I referred to, he appeared, ate lunch, went up to the mountain with Abraham, did a negotiation, and at the end of that, what, what happened with the Lord? He just left. He's gone. So there's no person before the appearance and no person after the appearance. So the appearances are temporary only. And they serve some redemptive, revelatory purpose. Whereas Melchizedek, I'll show you the wording that leads people to that wrong conclusion, but Melchizedek had a life before this event and after this event. So we'll read... um, Genesis 14, 17. After his return, this is Abram's return from defeating the kings in this battle. After his return from the defeat of, anyone want to try and pronounce that for me? Okay, good. I've always stumbled over that name. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went, Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevet, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, that's the only mention in the Old Testament of Melchizedek. How can I know just from what's described here that this can't be Jesus in an appearance? He's the king of an actual city. That means before he met with Abram, he had history. He had a life. He was the king. There's a real city of Salem at this time, which later becomes the city of Jerusalem. But it's a real city. He has a real physical existence and reality. Appearances, the Lord just comes onto the scene. There's no history before the, the appearance. And then when he's done with what the purpose of that appearance is, he disappears from the scene. No, it doesn't say that. What you're referring to is a misunderstanding of the Hebrews reference. Let's turn over there. Hebrews chapter 7. And I'll explain this because this is a common stumbling point in why Good Bible teachers at times will jump to the wrong conclusion and identify this as a Christophany. This is um, from Hebrews 7 where there's a whole section here. It's actually the whole chapter deals with this theme, but I just want to focus on the first few verses. Hebrews 7.1 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means literally king of righteousness. Okay? He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. Salem is the word which means peace in that language. And so he is by job title, king of peace, and by personal name, king of righteousness. And so in two important ways, he symbolizes or typifies the roles of Jesus in the kingdom of God as both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But then it's this next phrase that throws people off. Verse 3, 
he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. First of all, I'd just like to, you know, short form this and, and point you to the word resembling. What does resembling mean? Yeah, it's, there's some similarity. So this is referring to a similarity, which is symbolic, typological similarity. A, t- a type, just to, so we're on the same track, is a pre-shadowing of some greater spiritual reality that hasn't arrived on the scene yet. Kind of like if this is a stage and we're putting on a play, and let's say I'm the main character in the play, but I'm off stage, and the play is going on, and things are are happening on the play, and now it's my time to arrive on stage. Just before I arrive, for dramatic effect, the lighting of of the producer will be behind the main character so that as he arrives on stage, you'll see his shadow fall on the stage before he actually arrives on the stage. So the shadow resembles the character, but is not the character himself. So the Lord has filled the Old Testament with shadows of Christ that show us some elements, point to different aspects of who he would be when he arrived, but they're not Christ himself, okay? Now, the difficult wording, (coughs) excuse me, the difficult wording is when it says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, okay? Is Melchizedek an eternal person? Is that what the writer of Hebrews is actually trying to say? No, he is not trying to say that. What he's doing is he is commenting on the interesting and unusual way that Melchizedek is introduced in the book of Genesis and drawing a spiritual connection between that interesting introduction and the reality, the substance of who Christ actually is. There's only one person, of course, who is without, actually without father or mother from a spiritual standpoint other than God as father. But on an, on an earthly human level, there's no father or mother that can be referred to as this is the source of his life. I mean, obviously Jesus came through Mary, but we don't look at Mary like the Catholics do and refer to her as the mother of God, okay? His life is independent of Mary in that sense. In the same way, what is interesting about Melchizedek is all of the Bible characters, the main important characters throughout the Old Testament, when they're first mentioned, they're mentioned and introduced with this is who they are and this is who they came from. This person, like, that's what the genealogies do, for instance. This is the, the, this person is the, like Noah. He's the son of, I think it's Lamech or somebody like that. You know, he's the son of Lamech who is the son of this person, who's the son of this person, who is ultimately, far enough back, the son of Adam. Melchizedek is one of the only, if not the only, important Old Testament character that's introduced without mentioning his father, mother, or genealogy. Okay. The reason for that is so that the Lord could make and draw this spiritual symbolic parallel to Christ, but it doesn't mean, it's not intended to mean, that Melchizedek never actually had a father or mother or a genealogy. He had all three, it's just not mentioned in the text for a spiritually symbolic purpose. 
He's like a shadow. Yeah, foreshadow. Like Noah was a foreshadow. Like Moses was a foreshadow. Like David is a foreshadow. Like Abraham himself is a foreshadow. But all of those men are introduced by their parents being mentioned and their genealogy being mentioned. Melchizedek is the interesting exception to that rule. And so we're meant to stop and wonder, why isn't his heritage mentioned? And here the writer of Hebrews is telling us it wasn't mentioned so that God could make a spiritual point about Christ being himself eternal. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, uh, we're getting to the end of the time, but let me just give you a list of some of the other Christophanies. These are some of the important ones. We won't have time to go to these, obviously. Um, first big Christophany, Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, The Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That means there's a, a person there walking with them. That was Jesus. wasn't called Jesus then, but that was Jesus. Um, Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel incident. Let us go down. Anytime there's a going down, it's not God the Father who's going down. and God the Holy Spirit isn't going down until the day of Pentecost. It is Jesus going down. Uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and Genesis 18, three different appearances to Abraham. Christophanies in each case. Each at key moments. Genesis 12 was the calling of Abraham into the covenant. Genesis 17 was the establishment of the covenant through the rite of circumcision. And Genesis 18 is the one we just discussed about having lunch and a negotiation together over Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, you've heard me refer to this one before. I think this is worthwhile We've got just a minute to do it. Turn to this one. Genesis 19. This is immediately following the negotiation, and this is describing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I love the wording of this, and this indicates clearly in my mind why the, the on-earth appearances were always the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Um, Genesis 19, I'll read verse 24. I get there. And he, referring to the Lord, well, let's, uh, it's, yeah, verse 24. That's, I was reading verse 25. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. So what we have here are two lords. There's a Lord in heaven, and there's a Lord on the earth who's just, just completed just concluded this negotiation over Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord on earth rains sulfur onto Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord in heaven. So we get that? Two lords. Lord in heaven, who is? God the Father. Lord on earth, Son of God, second person of the Trinity. Okay, Genesis 32. This is the one that David taught on a few weeks ago, Jacob wrestling with God. But the, the being he wrestled with was also identified as a man. And it was a real wrestling match, right? It wasn't just like a spiritual image. There's a real wrestling match. So Jacob was wrestling with Jesus. 
Exodus 3, we just recently studied this as part of our uh, study in the names of God on Yahweh. Exodus 3 is uh, Moses turning aside to see this bush that was burning without being consumed. And a voice speaks to him out of the bush and identifies himself by these three names. Angel, angel of the Lord, God, which is Elohim, and Yahweh. And that, I believe, was Jesus. I believe he was hanging out in the bush. Because the, the commonly used term, it's not in every single case where there's a Christophany, but the commonly used term was a special designation of angel called the angel of the Lord. It's a special category of angel. It's an angel in the sense not that he's actually an angel, but in the sense that he is visible in the shape and form of a human being. So that's angelic. Something greater than humanity, but something similar to humanity, but not incarnated yet. Angel, but it's always angel of the Lord to, to distinguish him from the actual angels who are not, uh, you know, God. Uh, Exodus 33 and 34, the end of 33, beginning of 34. This is Moses on the mountain when he says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, okay, I'll show you my glory. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand over the cleft of the rock and passes by and shows him the afterglow of his glory as he proclaims the name of the Lord while passing by. And I believe that was Jesus revealing himself to Moses on the mountaintop. And then uh, Joshua is the final one, Joshua chapter 5. This is where the commander of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua just immediately prior. They've just crossed over the river Jordan. They've just entered the promised land. They've just obeyed the Lord and finally completing the, the uh, responsibility they had to have all the males of the nation circumcised. They should have done it much earlier, but finally now they're, they're obedient. And as soon as they complete the rite of circumcision, the Lord chooses to appear to Joshua to give him encouragement about the upcoming conquest of the promised land and reveals himself to Joshua. He looks like a human being coming to him, but he reveals himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Okay? And there are many others, many others that are, you know, that we could discuss, you know, is this a Christophany or, because there are appearances that are Christophanies and then there are appearances that are not Christophanies. What I mean by that is, for instance, the cloud. Was that a Christophany or not? It's an appearance of the Lord because the Lord's glory is revealed through the glory cloud that led them through the wilderness and settled over the tabernacle and and all of those things filled the tabernacle. But it's not an appearance in human form. So it's not a Christophany in the same sense. But it is a true true appearance of the Lord. No. No. Because I, I believe all theophanies are Christophanies. Right. You could make a, a broad case and say, okay, let's do this. You could, you could make a case like this. You could say, and we'll end here. If you're more comfortable with this, I would not argue with this approach, okay? And all we're doing here is we're, we're, we're discussing different ways of theologically categorizing the truth, Okay. But you could say theophany is the broad category. And under that category, there are two subcategories. Those are Christophanies, 
which are always physical appearances. in the form of a human being. And you could say, then there are the general appearances of the Lord, like, for instance, the cloud, or the rock. Remember the rock that we just studied that was split? Paul even says in the New Testament that rock was Christ, but he doesn't mean that rock was Christ in the same sense as the, the, the person that ate lunch with Abraham meaning that when we look in the, in the details of the Exodus description, the Lord was standing on top of the rock, but the rock symbolized Christ and the Lord himself. So you could say the broad category is theophany, the subcategory is Christophanies are always referring to physical human representations or appearances, and then there's the general ones, which are more, you know... Uh, Broad-based stuff like clouds and rocks and, and things of that nature. Redemptive or revelatory, yeah. The accomplishment of redemption, yes, absolutely. I have one more question, which we won't get to tonight. I'll have to save that until after the summer. That question was Steve's, which was... Um, what aspect of man was made in God's own image? Since God is spirit, it probably wouldn't be any physical features. Very good question. Very interesting topic. Very excellent question. And uh, we'll get to that. I'll save that and we'll get to that after the summer. If you can wait, Barry. All right. God bless everyone.